Pioneers are people responsible for breakthroughs in their field, taking things in a new direction, often a direction that wasn't anticipated before. So for instance, Johannes Gutenberg, that may sound familiar, he invented the printing press, which led to the information revolution, and since then things have never been quite the same. Or Isaac Newton, whose discoveries sparked the scientific revolution that gave us, in large part, the world that we know today. Or, maybe on a lesser status than those two, the Beatles, whose new sound and aesthetic gave momentum to the counterculture movement and the sexual revolution, which is still taking ground to this day. So pioneers are those who, for good or ill, take things in a new direction. Now, I would like to suggest that the church, that's us, is a pioneer community. There's a historian, his name is Larry Hurtado. He has a book entitled, Why on the Earth, Why on Earth, rather, Did Anyone Become a Christian in the First Three Centuries? Why on Earth Did Anyone Become a Christian in the First Three Centuries? So it's a good title, and it's an even better question, especially considering the severe persecution the church faced at that time. Now, Hurtado suggests that one reason that people were drawn to Christianity, despite all the disincentives, so literally if you became a Christian, you were putting your life at risk, so that one reason people were drawn to Christianity, despite all the disincentives, had to do, he says, with the nature and the quality of Christian community. And he calls the early church a unique social project in the ancient world. A contrast community that was simultaneously offensive and attractive to outsiders. In other words, the church was something radically new in the ancient world. Something they had never quite seen before, or in our terminology, it was a pioneer community. It was taking things in a new direction. Because at that time, communities were largely determined by race, by class, and by gender. But the church didn't recognize these social boundaries. As the Apostle Paul says, all of you are one in Christ Jesus. In a shame and honor culture, in which vengeance and retaliation were the norm in society, the church practiced reconciliation and forgiveness. In a time when human life was expendable, when the poor were neglected and infants who were unwanted were literally left out to die, the church took them in. And it cared for these most vulnerable people at great cost to itself. And in a sexually deviant culture where men were permitted to have relations with anyone on a, so, on a lower social scale, prostitutes or slaves or in some cases even children, the church called men and women to self-control and to lifelong monogamy. The church was a community done in a way that the ancient world never imagined possible. 
It challenged all the assumptions about how we order life and how we do things. It was a pioneer community, and it was the uniqueness of its way of life that made it compelling to outsiders. It amounted to a revolution. And of course, it repelled some. The church was heavily persecuted. They thought that they were, well, there's all kinds of things they thought about the early church, but they were heavily persecuted. But over time, the masses began to see the goodness of this new way of life, of the fruit that was being produced in these communities. And over time, the masses joined the church. And so the church community, this radically different way of doing things, was a light in a very bleak and dark culture for so many people. And it transformed culture because it didn't fit into it. It challenged it in love and demonstrated a new way. So what made the church so radically different? What made the church a pioneering community? It's the gospel, of course. Jesus' death and resurrection transforms human community. And it makes it possible for former enemies to become friends. For people who would be at odds with one another to live in peace and unity. It creates, as the Apostle Paul says in his great letter to the Ephesians, one new man, chapter 2, verse 15. The gospel creates a new human community. It creates the body of Christ. And the body of Christ operates not according to the relational manners and customs of fallen human society, but of the kingdom of God. The church is a pioneering community because it's patterned after the age to come. Now today, we're beginning a new series on community. It's the second installment in a three-part series. Now we began, this is the last somewhat ten weeks, um, with the church's worship. And that is our relationship to God. Now we have arrived at the church's community. That's our relationship to one another. And we'll close later on in the year with the church's mission. That is our relationship to the world. So we're going from God to ourselves to the world outward. And there's a logic there. We focus on our relationship with God. We bring that into conformity as much as possible. And then it flows out into these other areas as well. And so the point of these series is simply to go back to the basics, to catch the vision once again, and to lay a foundation that will sustain us for another 40 years. And our present series just a heads up, is broken down into three parts. A theology of community, a model of community, and then the practice of community. So we need a theology of community or of the church community because the church community is unlike any other community. We have to develop a vision and a desire for this new thing. And then we also need a model for community because that can't remain abstract. We have to see examples of what it looks like. And then lastly, We'll spend most of the series here talking about the practices of community, talking about table fellowship, talking about reconciliation, about hospitality, about so on and so forth. All these practices that give us the right tools to work out community in the life of the church. 
So we'll come to models and uh, practices as we go. But this week, and thankfully the only week, is the theology of community. And so I want to give you a vision of what could be. And that vision begins in Genesis 12, where the purpose of the church community emerges for the first time. So the passage that we just read. Now, Abraham's call in Genesis 12 is set against the backdrop of Genesis 1 through 11. And it's presented as the solution or the beginning of the solution to what happened in the garden a long time ago. Now, we know about God's good and gracious intention for the human race, how he created us in his image to serve him in the garden and to enjoy his rest forever. But we also know how the serpent and our cooperation with him spoiled all of that. Rather than the garden, it was the wilderness for humanity. And rather than the tree of life, it was scarcity, and rather than peace and justice. It was enmity and transgression. And from that point on, the story of Genesis 1 through 11 tells how human culture grows, how it develops its skills, and how it becomes more complex. So Cain is the founder of cities, and his descendants soon make instruments and forge tools. Noah plants a vineyard and drinks from its fruit. Nimrod builds a tower that reaches to the sky. Humans grow from simple gardeners to empire builders. However, as human culture grows and becomes more complex, so too does human sin. Sin develops alongside humanity. And as humanity grows in its knowledge and skill, sin grows in its power and its complexity. It moves outward from the individual heart to take root in the first human religions, and the first human governments, and the first human institutions. And the entire human race, in all in its endeavors, becomes entangled and ensnared by sin. It's sort of like a, a ball of yarn or a spool of string line that becomes so tangled and knotted up that it's impossible to sort it out and to make it useful again. The mass of human sin has become so complex and impenetrable and convoluted that it can no longer be untangled and straightened out and restored back to its original purpose. And by the time we reach Genesis 11 and the story of the Tower of Babel, that's where we find the human race. Uh, to use another illustration, it's a bit like uh, a project, I think we've all been here, that comes to a repeated dead end, and it has to be scrapped and started all over again. Right? So it's a paper for school, it's a, a craft for a friend or a project at the house, and it gets to a point where there's just no fixing it, and it has to be scrapped and started over. To push on in that situation would only mean more frustration. It would only mean another dead end. And at this point in human history, God has intervened in the human situation on multiple occasions. He's already scrapped the human project once before in the flood, but nothing changed. 
The human race is set on a trajectory that it cannot escape. The problem of sin is too root-bound. It's too tangled up to be sorted out. And so what can be done? Well, it's against this backdrop that God calls Abraham. I'll read our passage again. It says, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to a land which I will show you. And I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great. And so you shall be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you I will bless. And in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. So what is the only directive for Abraham in this passage? He's to go forth. That is, he is to set out from his country, from his relatives, and from his home to a land that God will show him. And there, God will do great things for Abraham. However, it all begins with this decisive break. And God changes his plan, it seems. He's no longer attempting to untangle the knotted mass of human culture and sin. Instead, he calls one man out from the mess to begin again with him. Go forth, leave to a land that I will show you. God breaks into fallen and decayed human culture and summons Abraham out to be the start of something new. Hence the command, go forth. Abraham is commanded to leave behind his country, his relatives, and his house to go to a place where he will unlearn all the old ways and be trained in new, one, in new ones. So when God calls a person or a people, he calls them out. That is, he separates them from the world and from other people, and he sets them apart as his special possession. And the purpose of separation is always so that this person or people can unlearn the old and sinful ways. Thus, God separates Abraham from all that he knows. And he sends him into the wilderness, far away from human civilization. And there, wandering as a stranger and a pilgrim, Abraham will unlearn the values and assumptions of his homeland, Ur of the Chaldees. In time, Abraham will come to discard the normal habits and practices of tribal life that he grew up in. He will even come to leave behind the things that his parents taught him. God separates him and commands him to go forth because he desires to work from a clean slate to begin again. And so Abraham's unlearning, it's a bit like the unlearning that one of us or any of us would have to do when we want to learn a highly technical skill for the first time, such as playing piano or mastering a golf swing. One comes with these habits and assumptions about normal human movement that have to be unlearned. It feels unnatural to position one, one's hands in uh, just like that to hold the golf club, not to punch the keys of the piano and etc. 
And that's why it's good to start someone young before they pick up a different way of doing things. And that's what God is doing with Abraham. He's separating him from his home and sending him into the wilderness where he can unlearn everything that he's picked up and learn the new way. Now, when it comes to church community, that's the first thing that we have to recognize. The church is not the world. And though we are in the world, we are not of it. We are those who, like Abraham, have heard and obeyed the summons to go forth. And as Abraham, we must depart from the former ways of country, of relatives, and of home. Or as Peter puts it, 1 Peter 1.18, the futile way of life inherited from your forefathers. To become the new community that God summons us to be, there has to be this fundamental distancing and unlearning of the ways of the world. We do things differently here. And what that means is that we must learn to take the call to holiness seriously. As a church, we have been separated from the world and set apart for God. And our life together as a community, that is, our relationships and the way we go about those relationships, are supposed to reflect a different order from the one that holds sway over our culture. It's not to be marked by the same relational patterns of self-seeking, of jealousy, and of anger that destroys so much of what we see. And this requires that we take an honest look at our dealings with one another, to see what moral logic governs our relationships, and where there's any worldliness, right, where we're still controlled by the works of the flesh and not the fruits of the Spirit, the summons is to go forth. God says to us, Leviticus chapter 20, verse 26, you are to be holy to me, for I, the Lord, am holy, and I have set you apart from the people's to be mine. You're to be holy to me because I've set you apart from all the other peoples. So, beginning with Abraham's call, there's a massive change in how Genesis tells the story. The narrative moves from the grand and tectonic movements of the nations. So, literally, the creation of the human race, the beginning of civilization, a flood to reset the world, and the Tower of Babel. It moves from those massive events to the sometimes absurd, sometimes petty problems of a nomadic herdsman and his family. Out are those seismic and large-scale concerns, and in are the domestic issues of everyday life. So what's going on here? Why does the narrative of Genesis take this abrupt shift from the massive, largest scale to the smallest scale? Well, God is moving from the universal to the particular, 
from the general to the specific, from all the nations of the world to one man and his family. Meaning, the scope and the scale of God's work has changed. God begins with very small things, not by setting the masses in motion. To change the whole world, God at first has no one but Abraham, one man. And the rest of Genesis tells the story about God his working, about how God is working through this one man and his family to teach him his ways. Now it's not an altogether straightforward progression. Sometimes the same lesson has to be learned twice, or even three times. Sometimes a sinful pattern has to be broken across generational lines. And sometimes the previous generation is even worse than the prior one. However, it's clear that the family of Abraham are being taken somewhere. This family is being led in a certain direction by God. And that direction is that they're learning to trust and to love God. So God says, Abraham, come out from among them. And with you and your family, I'm gonna, we're going to start again. and We're going to train you according to the ways of justice and righteousness. And so it's at this scale that God can work. It's at this scale from which true and lasting change can be accomplished. Not at the massive societal scale. God does not override human free will, reprogramming all humans to be obedient. Instead, what God does is he takes one man and his family, and he draws them out, and then he gives them time. Time to learn. Abraham messes up so much, but he eventually figures it out. His son Isaac and Jacob and the 12 uh, sons of Jacob all get it wrong so many times, but God gives them time to learn. He gives them time to understand, and of course, he gives them time to repent. And so God begins in a very small way. And he begins at one single place in the world. Because there must be a place, visible, tangible, for everyone else to see where the salvation of the world can begin. And listen, that is what the local church is. A small but concrete community where the Spirit of God is at work to restore and order human relationships according to true righteousness and justice. And through much patience and kindness and faithfulness on God's part, He is slowly but surely teaching us a new way of doing things. He's teaching us His way. He's transforming marriages. He's transforming the relationship between parents and children. He's transforming how we would handle disagreement. He's transforming the tendencies to pride and self-seeking. And he's teaching us, our community, to live in peace and in unity. Hence, the church is a pioneer community. The Spirit is always leading us out of the relational patterns 
of the flesh, which destroys human community into conformity with Christ, into and keeping step with the Spirit. So it takes time, but God has time. He's doing something new and different in the human community. And now that brings us, in the end, to the purpose of the call. God summons Abraham, and the command begins with him to go forth, but it ends with the promise of blessing. Not only for Abraham and his family, but for all the world. Verse 3, the very last clause, In you all the families of the earth will be blessed. So God does not separate one man from the nations so the nations can perish. Rather, he sets, a, he sets aside the one for the sake of the many. God is still very much concerned with all the families of the earth. That hasn't changed and it can never change. Rather, what has changed is that God is no longer dealing with all the families of the earth directly. Now he's dealing with them indirectly through Abraham. God's going to work through this one man and his family and all the people that would later come through him. He's working through them for the good of all the nations. So God is working in and through this local family to bring global blessing to all the families of the earth. And how so? Well, by conforming this family, that is, its relationships and their dealings with one another to true righteousness and justice. The family of Abraham, later to become the nation of Israel, was to be a community that demonstrated to all other communities what God intends for the human race. God placed Israel at the center of the ancient world, sandwiched between the great empires, so that it could live out its redemption on a very public stage, such that the peoples would see its light, its way of doing things, and be drawn to it. And later on, the prophets are given visions of this very thing. Isaiah sees the nations streaming into Jerusalem, into Israel, because God's law is taught there. Let us go up, because the law goes forth from Jerusalem. And it says they learn the ways of God, and they take their implements of war, and they turn them into tools for farming. Isaiah has another vision, chapter 60, where the kings and rulers of the world are being drawn to Jerusalem by the radiance of its light. Its glory is going out into all the world, and in come the rulers of the other nations bringing tribute and gifts because of what God is doing in that community. It's actually fulfilled, at least partially, in Solomon. Remember, Solomon in the reign of his kingdom, Israel was at its peak, its height. It never reached those heights again. Solomon was the wisest man on the earth. And in came the queen of Sheba to learn of his wisdom. And it says that her courage left her when she saw the palace of Solomon and all the beautiful things and all his wisdom. And she paid tribute to him. It's a small taste of what will be fulfilled in the end. Anyway, Switching to the church community, imagine, imagine for a moment outsiders 
looking to us, the way that we do life together as a church, as families, as individuals, and seeing something that they recognize as light. As Jesus says, you are the light of the world. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. That's the purpose of the church community. We are called to be distinct from the world, not for our own sake, but for the sake of the world. The church community is to live in such a way that it provokes questions to which the gospel is the answer. Let your light shine. God has placed us in the midst of our wider community to demonstrate his ways, the glory and the beauty of what life looks like according to God's purpose. So thus far, just to wrap up for a moment, we've seen three things. One, that God calls the church out of the world. Two, God calls the church out of the world to be different from the world. And three, God calls the church out of the world to be different from the world for the sake of the world. Now, we've talked quite a bit about one, right? God calls us out of the world. But let's take a look at two and three. How is it that the church is supposed to be different from the world? What makes the church this pioneer community that I've been talking about? Now, quite simply, the answer is that it's the gospel worked out in the life of the church community. In other words, the gospel is not allowed to remain a concept or an idea or even a message, something that can be trapped away in our minds or stored away in our hearts. Rather, the gospel has to be worked out in the church community that is, into our relationships with one another. The church community is patterned after the gospel. So I'm sure that sounds confusing or maybe it doesn't make sense. So I want to give you an extended illustration, an example of what it means when the gospel is worked out in the church community. And it comes from the New Testament and um, a heavyweight bout in the early church between none other than Paul and Peter. More accurately, between Peter and James, or between Paul and James, and, and poor Peter was caught in the middle of this conflict. Now, the location is Antioch, somewhere in uh, southern modern day Turkey. Now, what makes Antioch, this city, significant in the biblical story is that it's the first place where the gospel was preached to Gentiles, that is, to non Jews. Now, of course, remember, Christianity started with the Jewish people. All the apostles were Jewish people, and it spread from Jerusalem, from a Jewish context, out into a wider context. So the first time this sort of spilled outside of the Jewish boundaries was in Antioch. And so many non-Jewish people, they heard the word of the gospel preached to them, they received it, they confessed Jesus as Lord, and then they were brought into the church. And for the first time, this new community was formed. The church at Antioch became the first church where Jews and Gentiles worshipped together, where they had fellowship together, 
eating at a table, sharing their lives together, praying for one another. And it was the first time where Jew and Gentile were on mission together, serving the gospel of the Lord Jesus. So that might not seem like such a big deal to us, but at the time it was groundbreaking. Jews simply did not associate with non-Jews. They were considered unclean. They were considered defiled. They didn't associate with them, much less worship with them or eat at the same table with them. It was strictly forbidden. Now, for some time, this new thing in Antioch went on undisturbed until news about what was happening, Jews and Gentiles mixing together, reached Jerusalem. Now, apparently, this new social experiment offended certain men in James's circle. James was the leader of the church in Jerusalem and the Lord's brother. Now, we're not sure if James sent these men. That seems pretty unlikely. Or if they came um, on their own initiative to Antioch. But their objective was really clear. It was to stop this mixing of Jew and Gentile in the church and to separate the two groups once again. And these men from James were successful. And the apostle Peter was the first domino to fall. And when he, the leader of the apostles, separated from the Gentile Christians, everyone else followed suit. Everyone else, that is, except Paul. And so in his letter to the Galatians, he recounts how this went down. He says, when Cephas, that's the apostle Peter, came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For prior to the coming of certain men from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they came, he began to withdraw and to hold himself aloof, fearing the party of the circumcision. The rest of the Jews joined him in this hypocrisy with the result that even Barnabas was carried away by their hypocrisy. He says, But when I saw that they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas in the presence of all, and then he goes on and recounts what he had said to him. you got to love Paul. He's the lone man here. And he stands against these men from James, from Peter. He stands against Barnabas and all the rest of the Jews who had separated themselves. Why? Because he says they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel. What they were doing in their community was compromising the gospel. It's an interesting phrase that he uses. They were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel. In the original, it's the word orthopedeo. So ortho, meaning straight, think orthodontist. And pedeo, meaning foot, so think podiatrist. And so the word means something like to, to, to chart a straight course. Hence, it's translated in the ESV, their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel. Or my favorite, the NIV, it says, they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel. So the gospel creates a line in the church community. And these men, by separating from non-Jews, were deviating 
from that line. They were compromising the gospel. So Paul's point here in confronting them is that these men do not understand the implications of the gospel and what it means for the church community. They might understand it sort of as a doctrinal item, but they don't understand what it means for relationships, specifically between Jew and Gentile in this case. Jesus' death and resurrection, Paul will go on to say, has broken down the dividing wall between Jew and Gentile. And by separating from the Gentiles, these men are building that wall back up. They're effectively denying the work of Christ. They're not acting in line with the truth of the gospel. And thus Paul rebukes them because the gospel is not being worked out in their community. You might know it up here. It might make all the sense in the world up here, but it has yet to work its way into the community. The gospel erases all distinctions between Jew and Gentile because all have sinned and all have fallen short of the glory of God and all are freely justified by his grace. Therefore, there must be no division between Jew and Gentile in the church community. If God doesn't recognize that division in the gospel, then we can't recognize that division in the church. You see, the gospel is more than an idea or a concept. It's something that must be worked out, lived out in the life of the church. So it should look something like this. You see on your left-hand side, the gospel creates the church, and then the church displays, gives credibility to, and protects the gospel. That's what our community is about. Now, in the first instance, the church displays the gospel. Consider that every human community, in one form or another, displays something. That is, some value, some ideology, some personality is put on display in how the community lives together. Very broken neighborhoods display the power of lust or greed or oppression or some combination of all of them, and they show how such forces can tear apart human relationships. Something is being put on display. Some families display the overbearing control of parents, a domineering father, a criticizing mother. Some families display the goodness of what it looks like when a father and a mother love each other and raise their children in the fear and admonition of the Lord, so on and so forth, right? It's displaying something, a family. Or some communities can display a commitment to an ideology. Consider the Stonewall community or the various communities that you might find on a university campus. They're displaying an ideology. So what is the church community to put on display in its relationships? Or put otherwise, when people look at the church, what are they supposed to see? Well, they're supposed to see the redeeming and transforming power of the gospel. That is, outsiders are supposed to look upon the church and see the power of Jesus' death and resurrection to remake human community, to achieve peace 
where there was formerly conflict, to achieve unity where there was formerly disunity, and to achieve common, the common good where there was formerly nothing but self-seeking. And that's the great task of our community, is to work out the truth of the gospel into our relationships, to be put on display for all the world to see. And, and just real quick, over the next three sermons, that's what we'll do. We'll look at the gospel and then what it says about our community. The gospel is about adoption. We are made sons and daughters of God, and that has to be worked out in our relationships. We must live in brotherly love for one another. The gospel is about justification, that God accepts us solely on the basis of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Therefore, that's the basis of our community. No matter what other differences, that's the only one that counts. And then, of course, the gospel is about the Spirit and where to walk in step with the Spirit and not according to the flesh. On and on we'll go for three weeks. And then we see that the gospel or the church community, when it faithfully displays the gospel, it also gives credibility to the gospel. And it becomes more than an idea or a concept. And it's demonstrated to be a living power that effectively works in human relationships. Because just imagine, when people see the church practicing forgiveness, like when there's real harm done to one another and we're able to overcome that, when they see the church practicing reconciliation, when they see us honoring one another, rather than tearing each other down like all our culture knows how to do, when they see a sharing of not just our lives, but even our substance, substance with one another, when they see these things, it testifies to the reality of the gospel. It's not something easily dismissed. It's something to be reckoned with. And though in the end they may not believe it, they will respect it. That's what Peter says. Keep your conduct honorable among the Gentiles, so that when they revile you as evildoers, they may see your good conduct and glorify God on the day of visitation. It gives credibility to our message. And lastly, the church community protects the gospel. It calls brothers and sisters who are not acting in line with the truth of the gospel to repentance. Now, it's an exceedingly high calling to live out the gospel in our community. And of course, we are going to consistently fail. But we repent. And we continue on the course. And this, too, gives credibility to the message. It shows that we're serious about living the gospel and that we don't take willful and consistent deviations lightly. That we're serious about righteousness and sin and so on and so forth and that these things, that living holy unto God is important for our community. So in displaying the gospel and giving credibility to the gospel and protecting the gospel, the church is a pioneer community. Certainly the world will be offended and they will count us as evildoers, but it will also attract those who are being saved. When they see the hospitality, the love, the work that the Spirit of God has done among us, it will be a light in our community and God the Father will be glorified in our work. So as we turn to the Lord's Supper now, I'd like you just to turn your heart to that gospel.
the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus by which you were justified, by which you were adopted into the family of God, by which we are made brothers and sisters. So I invite you now to come receive the elements of the supper, to take them back to your places, and I'll lead us in the celebration of the Lord's Supper in just a moment.